0: This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra
1: Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. Is there's no box. There is no box. You define what the boundaries are because there is this transportability, as you said, of certain concepts that don't seem to apply here, that maybe you have the vision of saying, wait a minute, You know, I have this vision that it applies in this particular way. And this is how this particular segment can benefit from the knowledge that has been gained over in this other segment. And the trick there is you may be wrong and that's okay. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest
0: point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan and I'm an explorer I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullimanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to KathySullivanExplorers.com. My guest today is pilot extraordinaire Charles Justice. The son of Cuban immigrants, Charlie fell in love with flying in his early teens. Swapping Boy Scouts for the Civil Air Patrol, he began charting his path to the skies, first as an Air Force pilot and then a NASA test pilot. When Charlie retired from NASA in 2010, He had flown some 16,000 hours in over 100 different types of aircraft, plus chased space shuttles returning from orbit and trained every astronaut who ever piloted and landed a space shuttle. Oh, and he also carried space shuttles across the country on the back of his modified 747. He's now an aviation safety consultant, occasional professor and science fiction author. So let's take off on a fun flight with Charlie Justice. Charlie Justice, a longtime NASA pilot, Air Force guy, friend and colleague. It is absolutely a delight to have you with me this morning.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Kathy. This is wonderful.
0: It's been forever since we saw each other in person. I think it was last when I came by your place in, must have been 2018 or so, and was still working on my Hubble book, and we had a great long chat about writing books and how to make them make them good, get them better.
1: That was pre-COVID, so I don't think I even remember that far back. <laughs>
0: yeah, I bet, I'll bet you do. <laughs> well, as I warned you in our chit chat before we got started, I love to start these conversations with some discussion of you know how the person became the figure that I have in front of me on my screen or on the podcast today. Tell me about the very young Charlie Justice and your family, where you grew up, what you remember, what kind of kid you were like.
1: Well, I was uh, five kids. I was the first boy. I have an older sister, a Cuban family, Cuban-American family. My dad uh, was a surgeon. My mom was an artist. And we spent Every six months, we'd go and forth between Havana and Miami. Uh, my doctor's dad did his surgery both in Havana to visit with the family that was there and, and back to Miami again because he did his residency in uh, Northwestern in Chicago.
0: When had they come to the States?
1: Well, the last time we came was obviously 1959. We said light to moderate gunfire was a good thing to avoid. Uh. That was the revolution, the, the Cuban, well, the end of the many Cuban revolutions. The cube if you say the Cuban Revolution uh, to a Cuban, you have to say, well, which one? Because they started <laughs> roughly in the twenties and it was a snowball from there. It was a very interesting descent until finally Castro took over. So that's it's a, a very stark study on what can happen wow. to a, a once stable country.
0: So what do you remember of those early trips? Because you how how old were you have been in nineteen fifty nine?
1: Seven. It uh, was the last time I was in Havana. So we went to uh, Havana the last time. The, the cool thing about that is it was different back then. As That's a tautology almost. But come on, we'd get up in the oh uh, Dark Hundred.
0: That's pilot talk for way too damn early in the morning, by the way. Way
1: too early, <laughs> way too early. And uh, we'd jump into the the car and we'd drive for four hours to Key West from Miami Uh, which back then was quite a treat. And the one thing I do remember is, as a kid, is all the power lines everywhere. This is hurricane country, just like everybody knows. And uh, the infrastructure got wiped out pretty regularly. And you just snap something up there to get things working again and wait till it got knocked down again later. Wow. But uh, I do remember that very primitive uh, back then. A lot of uh, cow pastures, for example.
0: Between Miami and Key West, a lot of cow pastures?
1: Yeah. I mean, it was agricultural, very agricultural. Wow. I do remember that. A lot a lot of dairy. And then we'd get to Key West and you'd get on a ferry at about eight o'clock in the morning with your car. You would drive the car on there and you'd ferry over to Havana, 90 miles away, get there about noonish, drive off and go to grandma's house. That was normal. But the one thing I do remember was Cuba back then, there was no power lines above the ground. All of it was uh, underground because uh, they had a different philosophy. And a lot of it was the Corps of Engineers, I found out later. Our oh, yeah. Corps of Engineers, not the Cuban, actually built that infrastructure. Oh, wow. But that was as a kid. So after 59, it was pretty normal growing up. Uh, we went back and forth between Chicago and Miami for my dad's work. He did a, a lot of research, cancer research early on, and then decided that uh, straight surgery was more what he wanted to do, which made us settle down in Miami. And once we settled down there, very big into trying to figure out what to do with my life at the stark age of you know 13 or something.
0: <laughs> well, what kind of kid were you before you got to 13? Were you the bookish kid, the sporty kid, the screw off at school class clown?
1: <laughs> I was I was a little bit of everything there. You know, nobody here thinks I'm funny. <laughs> you know, when you're a kid, everything is bigger and 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 more exciting because it's new. And so everything for, to me was new, you know, joined the Boy Scouts, you know, the Cub Scouts, then Boy Scouts. And then this new fancy thing happened called Civil Air Patrol. And Ooh. I go, airplanes? Yeah, exactly. I had just come back from a trip with the family to Colorado, which, of course, Colorado is gorgeous by any means, but they had this kind of a new school over there called the United States Air Force Academy. And I said, wait, if I graduate from there, They'll pay me to fly. Now, wait, where did the flying interest come from? That's a good rewind, actually. My dad had, uh, uh, had a fear of heights. Mm. And he said, the way to beat this is I going to learn how to fly, which I'm not sure, you know, the efficacy of that, to be honest. But OK, <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid of bleeding. So where's the knife? He you <laughs> know, took this little kid, this little 13-year-old kid, uh, me, and said, hey, how would you like to split a lesson with me? And I said, Oh, are you kidding? In a heartbeat, let's go. He thought it would kind of flag me away from uh, flying. And uh, what it did more is fan some pretty serious flames. And it's like, Oh, no, no, no. This is all for me. That week, I was talking about it so much. My mom who was, uh, you know, the ultimate enabler goes, Hey, you know, there's this (laughs) thing I found called Civil Air Patrol. And Oh, Oh. that was it. (laughs) It's like zoom, zoom and
0: were you hung up on airplanes before that? I mean, my, my brother was looking for pictures of airplanes and building model airplanes and, you know, begging my parents to go to the local, little local airport in, you know, 1951 and two and three. So he could look through the fence at little Cessnas, like starting at age four or five. I don't know where that came from at age four or five, but you know, it was there. What's the root of yours, do you think?
1: Well, shoot, this is like Sitting in the uh, psychiatrist chair. This is excellent. Well,
0: come on. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah,
1: uh, uh, I do remember. Okay. So Cuban revolution happens. My cousin flees the Cuban revolution with his family comes down to Miami. And so I've got a buddy. He's a a few years older than I am. One of the cool things about kids is you do dangerous stuff. You don't even realize. And uh, there was a salvage yard close to our house, less than a mile away that had the wrecks of airplanes. Now that, wasn't a cautionary tale to a kid you know I should have thought a little bit more about that but there was I mean some really cool airframes and we're talking about little airframes as well like I remember one was an air coupe if you know what that airplane is doesn't have any rudder pedals and that was like wait a minute how does this stupid thing even steer it just fascinated many people have wondered that (laughs) yes well having flown it I tell you what I that was Pretty baffled by it as well, but uh, we had that, and and we would spend hours in this junkyard in the cockpit playing airplane. Wow! Yeah, you know these things were stripped; they're uh, old uh, fabric and tube type things, but there's no fabric anymore. So I got to see the bare bones of it, which is fascinating to me.
0: Yeah, a lot of people don't know there are still even today airplanes that are made of like a girder of tubes of aluminum typically, and then covered with a fabric that's you know, treated. Sounds like the top of a drum if you tap your fingers on it. So they're not all
1: metal on the outside. No, they're not. And those are some of the more fun ones, if you ask me. Yeah. The cloth and tube airplanes are, are some of the most uh, exciting ones to fly, especially taildraggers, where the tail wheels yeah. on the back end of the airplane as opposed to nose draggers, which is up in the front. Yep. <laughs> they're just fun. <laughs>
0: Yeah, they're great fun. Yeah.
1: And, you know, so that was really, uh, I started getting deeper and deeper. And of course, my parents had the required collection of National Geographic, obviously pre internet. So we had from 190 right. something until the, you know, a current one, 61 or something like that, the bound volumes of all of them. And in there were, of course, the war years. And uh, I was able to, you know, read through National Geographic, all of that all the lead-ins, the design of all these fabulous airplanes. And that really got me going, you know, and, and probably the biggest thing has driven me my whole life is how does that work? How, you know, I'm not smart enough mm. on this. I have to get smarter on this kind of thing. And so I've got a huge bug at this point, 10 or 11. Uh, so about 12, the family takes a trip to Colorado and Colorado is absolutely gorgeous. That's fascinating. What we ended up doing is going to well.
0: The Air Force Academy is just a couple of years old.
1: Yeah. Well, I guess they were uh, they were just brand new at that point. Yeah. Uh, and everything was fresh and shiny. That added to the glamour of it. It was like, man, this is something. And of course, the biggest thing of it was they'll teach me how to fly. They'll pay me to fly. That was, I mean, to a 13 year old kid They'll
0: pay for your college education. Oh,
1: yes. I mean, this is like, oh, you know, the the angel choir sings the clouds part. It was like, (laughs) you're kidding me. I could tell my mom and dad, you know, we're struggling, obviously, uh, even though he's a surgeon. This is uh, post-revolution. He's lost half his income. It took a few years to recover from that. So we're all kind of in a mess when they found out that they'll pay for the uh, college education. My dad's like, oh, no, you're going there. So it's like we're all in, <laughs> <laughs> it's, we're all in agreement, Dad. I don't with even that.
0: care if you hate airplanes; you're going. That's there. <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> you know this whole love hate thing. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so no, uh, but he was he was very uh, supportive of my personal desire to go there, and my mom especially. My mom was a little bit like my wife Dana uh, in that she was uh, very politically astute and had a lot of connections that. Uh, she pulled on to help me get into the Air Force Academy. And long story short, uh, I was able to get there because combination of my own uh, hard work in high school. And then of course, her helping because it doesn't come easy. You have to have people recommending you.
0: Did that flip a switch academically for you? I mean, now you have sort of this vision, this shining, shining object on the horizon you want to get to and did it up your grades and you know, focus you more in school or were you already that kind of focused kid?
1: I was already focused. I had a real good feeling for math and science, not so much in English and the like. The One of the things that I do remember from high school is uh, because we were a refugee community in Miami, even back then, uh, we had a person who was a lawyer that it was on the Bay of Pigs invasion, but he taught Spanish literature. So literature in Spanish which I thought was fascinating because at the same time I was taking Spanish literature, I was taking English literature, and I loved the comparisons as a kid. And that was the only way to do it. Once again, no internet back then. So if I want to compare it, if they hand you the literature books and say, here, you know, here's two literature books and you can mix and match and see, you know, in 1600s, what was the literature like? What are they thinking about? What are the people like? So that was one of the fascinating things. And uh, that gave me a tremendous love for learning. It just, you know, I've always had that ever since then.
0: Yeah. Do you remember any of the key comparisons and contrasts that struck you back then?
1: The Spanish were very sexual. Oh, yes. (laughs) They're they're horny little guys. (laughs) You know, not to take anything away from Chaucer, but uh, I was surprised at the way they approached philosophy and politics are the two things that, that really shocked me the most. The Spanish were, you know, I would never, you know, being Cuban, everybody goes, well, you're Cuban, so you must know uh, about Spanish history. No, I know a, a little bit about Cuban history, of course. But the Spanish was kind of like a cipher to me. I didn't understand a whole lot of it. So I ended up, you know, learning a lot just in that literature class, trying to figure out what was going on in Spain. That caused people to react this way and write these kind of, you know, like uh, Cervantes. Cervantes was great. I just loved uh, the way he phrased things. You know, this is a crazy knight he's writing about, and Don Quixote. Yeah, he's he's got it spot on. Don Quixote de la Mancha. It's fascinating, and there's there's nothing really that I found. You know, not that it was an exhaustive look, but the uh, English literature at the time was a little more somber because of the politics at the time for them. So that was interesting to watch uh, the differences.
0: So you get into the Air Force Academy and I imagine you your folks probably drove you up there. You flew up.
1: Yeah, my dad drove me up there. You know, we grew up in Miami. I grew up in Miami, I should say. So the first thing my dad does is he takes a drink out of a tap when we get to the, uh, Uh, this is in June, the water is ice cold. And he goes, Charles, I'd like to buy you a drink. (laughs) And he he hands me a glass of water out of the tap. And I go, Dad, what are you talking about? And uh, I take a a sip of it. And it is the most, it was like ambrosia. It was the clearest, cleanest water. And I'm thinking to myself, what kind of junk have I been drinking in Miami? (laughs) This is amazing. So that was my first introduction to Colorado as an older teenager. That was uh, a a wonderful week. My dad, you know, basically, you know, kicked me through the gates of the Air Force Academy and off I go. Four years of uh, study there.
0: How'd you succeed with the freshman hazing and all that stuff?
1: Well, the good news was I got lucky. You know, the Civil Air Patrol, it turns out, really good lead in because they did have a very similar approach to basic cadets. And they hate. Wow. Them. And I always thought that was stupid. And then I got to the Air Force Academy and I go, oh, OK, I, now I understand some of what's going on. And I was able I got through that part of it. OK, You do is you keep your head down
0: and you recognize it as a game.
1: Oh, it's it has to be considered a game. At least I did. I remember one of the, the things I learned very quickly at the Air Force Academy was what's called the military ridgeline. Mm. Mm -hmm. which I know you're familiar with, but you you never, especially at night, you do not walk on the, on the ridge. That's the easiest place to walk. And it's the easiest place for people to see you and shoot at you. (laughs) So you, uh, the military ridgeline is uh, a third of the way from the top uh, you go down. So it's, it's a lot harder to see someone that's down low walking there. Now the, the walking is really tough. It's about half as slow, but you're a lot less dead, of course. So, you stay off the military ridge line as a cadet. You don't uh, pop your little head up and get shot at.
0: <laughs> when did you get to start flying? Uh,
1: well, I'd already uh, been flying after my dad gave me an introductory flight. He split his lesson with me with uh, an instructor who was also a Bay of Pigs invasion wow. veteran. There's a theme there. We were in a little J3 Cub, which you're well mm-hmm. familiar with. Uh, speaking of rag and tube. Classic yellow with the engine jugs sticking out the side of the airplane, and uh, I thought that was great. My dad was freaked out by it, but uh, I thought, you know, how simple, you know, how much gas you have. It's real simple. There's a tank right in front of you, so if you crash, you get splashed with all the gas. Of (laughs) course, good design. But there's a cork in a what looks like a coat hanger that's bobbing up and down. Yeah, little cork floats in the glass tube. Yes. And it's Bobby. You're good. It's not Bobby. Land. <laughs> I thought that was fantastic. You know, so obviously I, I went into aerospace engineering at the academy because, once again, it's, I don't know how this stuff works. How do the structures work? How do you get a better power plant? How do you lift a power plant? How do you know where to put a power plant on an airframe? This is cool stuff. I wanted to learn all about that. So I went into aerospace. Unfortunately, they teach you a lot of other stuff, yes. which is like, oh, man, that, that was hard.
0: Yeah, good thing you were good at math.
1: <laughs> yeah, no kidding, because uh, a lot of it was, I remember going to one physics class there, and I got through it because of F equals MA. They asked me all these questions, and I had no clue what they were talking about. And every question, I went back to F equals MA, okay, or F sum of the forces equals zero, either one. Oh, man, I'm I'm screwed, you know, and, and just put a hash of uh, work on a piece of paper. And I got, I got a perfect score on it. And I go, how did that happen? And it's like,
0: go back to those first principles, right? The fundamental forces, mass time. That's all I had. And then think your way forward from there.
1: Yeah. And that's, that's all I did because uh, apparently the teacher had made a mistake and, mm-hmm. and I screwed everybody because, because I got a hundred, he counted the test, oh. but he, it was for the, the next chapter that we were going to, Go over in the next week. And so he didn't realize that he, he gave us a test a week early, and uh, <laughs> all of us were lost. But that's when I learned hey, first principles. And always, you know, you want to check your work? It's simple. Go back to first principles. The answer's there.
0: Does this defy gravity? <laughs> Does it presume? Yeah, t- that's t- right. T- t- is five? <laughs> then it must be the wrong answer.
1: Does F not equal MA? Hmm. These, this is bad.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, what did you get to fly at the academy? How does that emerge? I mean, you're you're majoring in aerospace engineering. What are the steps that get you on the track to actually go become an Air Force pilot? Because not everyone who goes to the academy ends up flying an airplane.
1: Yeah. And not everybody that goes to training for flying an airplane gets through the training. Yeah. It is hard. What I did is I got to the academy. I said, well, I want to be a pilot. So what I am going to do is I'm going to become a pilot before I go to the Air Force Academy which I did. So I had a couple of hundred hours. I had my private pilot's license. I was well along with uh, learning commercial and instrument stuff. So as soon as I got there and I was allowed, I uh, joined the aero club, which is just like any aero club that you pay for with your own money for flying.
0: Kind of a timeshare arrangement on airplanes. Yeah, it
1: it was cheap by any standard, but I actually got a really good instructor Uh, While I was there, you've probably heard of him, uh, Chesley B. Sullenberger III.
0: Oh, yes. Yep, Sully.
1: Yeah, famous Sully. And so he was my instructor at the academy. I do remember quite well. I had only been flying in Miami up to this point, you know, out to the islands and stuff. So pretty flat. We take off at 6,000 feet. Uh, I think is what Falcon field was at. And, you know, it's got less support little airplanes just uh, struggling, but it is gorgeous. It is a crystal clear day in Colorado, just a little touch of snow on the mountaintops. I am like in heaven and Sully plays instructor and pulls the power on me because I was looking around Mm. and he goes, where are you going to land? And he did that to me like three times. So it got my attention. I go, no, he's, he's being a good instructor. I got to pay attention up here, uh, especially with this guy in the other yeah, seat.
0: You're, you're not sightseeing. You're the pilot.
1: No, I'm I'm driving. So uh, he did exactly the right thing. But I do have to tell you when uh, after the uh, his uh, miracle on the Hudson, which uh, when I found out about that, oh, my, my gosh, somebody landed in the Hudson and everybody lived. I don't know who that guy is, but, you know, you know, applause to the crew. That was brilliant because if you land in any body of water with a jet, chances are it's going to crack and break. The water immediately rushes in and you lose a lot of people, if not everybody, you know, as well as I do. So that was, that was a brilliant, brilliant bit of flying on his part. You know, so I'm like, you know, that guy's a genius. I'm looking afterwards and there's Sully having a cup of coffee in the uh, Port Authority I go, oh my God, Sully. That was Sully. Well, that's no surprise then. Mm -hmm. You know, it would have been a a feat of supreme airmanship for anybody else. For Sully, it was Thursday. (laughs) You know, it's like no big deal. Anyway, when when he came to NASA to give his talk, uh, which is very inspirational, very brilliant about uh, airmanship, and he was super cool for everybody to listen to. I introduced him by telling the story that, this guy kept pulling the power on me go, where are you going to land? Where are you going to land? And I do have to admit that when I saw that it was Sully that was the captain on that, my first thought was, hey, how does it feel? Pull the power. Where are you going to land? Ha, 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 <laughs> <laughs> I admit to feeling really bad about that, but I'm human, I Not, guess. not your nope. finest moment. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. No. <laughs> and he laughed at that. And I go, look, you know, Captain Sullenberger. Yeah. But anyway, that's uh, that's how we got the, the flying part of it done. I did it this way because I knew that I was going to be flying exactly the same equipment, the Mighty Mighty 241, which is a Cessna 172. It's a high-wing, lovely, simple, forgiving airplane, uh, but I wanted to learn it as much as possible. Same thing. So I got a chance to fly some of that. They also fly you in what uh, uh, they call Operation Stardust, where they fly you in jet airplanes. It's a T-33, so a single-engine Korean War Vintage Jet, straight wing, which is a lot of fun. I flew that like two or three times. And that was about it the whole time I was at the Academy. And I signed up for it every time it was available, of course. They also flew navigation routes in uh, T-29s, which are uh, Convairs or two engine, radial engine monstrosities that are just a, you know, big old shaking, wonderful bag of bolts. (laughs) They put you in there and uh, it was kind of fun because this is before GPS Right. This is before this fancy new thing called the VOR. We're starting to get them all over the the country, and nobody knew how to work them. A lot of it was... And
0: just, just for a little context, a VOR is a, a radio station put in place all around the country, over time all around the country. So a pilot could tune their radio to that station, and it would make a certain needle on a display, you know, swing left or swing right and help you know, am I heading towards that station or away from it? Is it to my left or to my right? And you would, if you were going from point A to point B, you'd fly along a string of those stations. So you would,
1: you could know for sure where you were. Correct. And before this, you had what they called non-directional beacons, NDBs. So the NDBs is what you had, and there were radio stations, regular radio, AM radio, and you would go there, but it's non-directional, so you have a needle that's saying it's either left of your nose or right of your nose. You have no idea. Yeah. And then the the VOR, the very high-frequency omni-range VOR, what you ended up with, the omni-range as opposed to non-directional part of the uh, other one, is you could come in and know exactly what radial you are away from this particular station. So, I mean, it was a huge leap. And then this was even before DME was out there, distance measuring equipment. So you still had no idea how far away you were from something.
0: So it's all triangulating with these very fuzzy, really quite fuzzy navigational aids, you know, helping you triangulate. But yeah, it was it's still a lot of seat in your pants, which is good if you can see the ground. It's not so comfortable if there's clouds below you.
1: Yes. Or if you're in the clouds themselves where it's all suds and, you know, where are you? Well, I sort of, are, you know, and that, that happened to, you know, one of the, here I am a stupid snot nosed cadet in the back. And uh, we've got our own little navigation stations back there that have all these different radios and stuff that we tune in and try to figure out where we are. So I go up to see if I can see the ground anywhere to verify where I am. And of course it's, it's all clouds. So it's opaque nothingness out there. And uh, the the co-pilot goes, well, where are we? And I, you know, without even thinking, I've got a a map in my hand. I go, we're here. You know, like, oh yeah, we're here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And he goes, yeah, that's right. I go, you don't know either, do you? (laughs) So so it was, it was kind of fun to learn all of this stuff and, and, you know, uh, learn uh, celestial navigation, which was a lot of fun becoming a lost art just about you know and and why do you need it if you have gps well yeah. what if you're above the gps satellites and you're navigating
0: you know? now what do you do yeah
1: yeah artemis did not use
0: yeah artemis can't use gps you're miles away apollo didn't nope. use. It. i mean it didn't exist then but you, yeah. you know i mean gps amounts to putting your own stars in the sky so you know where you are and you can navigate on them it, so it's a you know, Space age version yeah. of celestial navigation, in a sense It really is yeah so i I want to fast forward a little bit because you had a fascinating Air, Air Force career, but then joined NASA, and I'll get you to give us the date of that. but at NASA, you flew some really, very exotic airplanes, and the one I'm particularly curious to ask you about is you for quite some time flew the seven forty seven that was used to carry space shuttles once they had returned from space, for example, carry them from Edwards Air Force Base in California, where they might have landed, back to the Kennedy Space Center in Florida, where they were going to get you know, cleaned up and tidied up and made ready for their next flight. So in sort of layman's terms, part of that I can't really, there's a lot of it I can't understand. It's amazing to just see a <laughs> space shuttle perched on the back of a 747. But the other thing I've been thinking about as we got ready for this conversation is, how in the world do you get ready to carry a space shuttle on your back? I mean, even if you know how to fly a 747, you're going to put a couple hundred thousand pounds of a space shuttle on your back. How do you... Literally. Fi- yeah. How do you figure out what your airplane's going to fly like with this blivet, this 200,000-pound thing on your back? Oh, that, by the way, interacts with you around you just like your airplane does. How did you do that?
1: Carefully. (laughs) That's uh, the important first step. I was in the Air Force for 10 years. Last job was in flight test, where a couple of guys uh, you may know, Mike Mullane and Dick Covey, came from there in 78 and joined a certain group of uh, TFNGs. My group, 35 new guys. Yep. And uh, they came from the flight test wing at Eglin. Uh, They Mm -hmm. came back in '80. And they say, we're still looking for guys. And I go, well, at this time, I am, I have to think a second. I have to do math in public. I'm like 27. And I go, well, you know, I don't have enough experience to be an astronaut. I don't have a, the prerequisites. But what else have we got over there? Dick Covey's the one who goes, man, you have to take a look at uh, flight operations. And I go, you guys have a flight operations? Once again, pre-internet, you know, the information yeah. flow wasn't like it is today. So long story short, I Fly one of the Air Force jets over there and look at the nice NASA jets, and I go, "Ooh, those are nice." <laughs> so I had a chance to go fly F-15s in the Air Force or go to NASA, and I, I chose to go to NASA because they're the guys that had the uh, the space stuff. Yeah, and I said, "Oh, that's 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 too much fun."
0: Well, the the Air Force trains you, you had probably trained in the two seat jet called the T-38, which most of the times you see an Air Force training command, T-38. It kind of looks like your uncle's 30-year-old used car. It's been beat up, you know, pretty hefty. NASA's got a fleet of T-38s as well for astronaut proficiency and training, but they look like they just came off the showroom floor. I mean, slick paint job. I had more than a few Air Force pilots land at the same base I was at in their T-38 and look at mine like, I think I'm embarrassed to have brought my airplane in here. Can I take yours? (laughs)
1: Yeah, no kidding. Well, if you remember, we had the absolute first one off the flight line that was an operational one that had been for 20 years, I think it was, maybe more, not flying. It was a maintenance test facility. So uh, you get mechanics that are in training to you know pull motors out, put them in, and that's how they trained is on this rig. And uh, we said, well, that's just like NASA does. NASA goes, are you about to throw that away? Yeah. Uh, uh, do you mind if we have it? And you know, we, we, we would fly that kind of stuff all the time. Uh, so the first one, and you should have seen, you know, I don't know if you remember that. The only way I could tell which one it was is very a very particular part of the uh, canopy system was different because it was so shiny and bright and well-maintained, like all of our airplanes were, that it was ridiculous how pretty it was. And so, you know, I'd have to go to the, the nose and go, oh, yeah, 1959. This, this is old number one. <laughs> Wow. It, it flew beautifully. Yeah. Now, all of the airplanes there were magnificent. I, fl- of course, flew the T-38, which is uh, required by everybody. Everybody has to fly that, and especially the astronauts. Astronaut spaceflight readiness training, very important, I think. I was an instructor on the shuttle trainer, which is a modified Gulfstream that flew like the space shuttle. Which means it dropped like a rock. No, not like a rock. It, uh, I prefer a, a John break. Young's uh, Captain Young's. No, his was was more eloquent. It, it flies like a safe with the door open. I go, <laughs> well, well, thank you, Captain Young. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and yeah. it, it does. If you, you know, as well as I do, that if you jump out at yeah, as you go subsonic at about 40,000 feet, the shuttle will beat you to the ground.
0: The yeah. shuttle
1: beats you to the ground. It's like that's how fast it's falling. Wow.
0: <laughs> yeah, it does. Uh, you know, people have some familiarity, many do, with coming into an approach on a commercial airliner. The shuttle approach is, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's sort of three times as steep and twice as fast, roughly.
1: Well, a airliner comes in at about two and a half to three degrees glide slope. Right. The shuttle comes in at 18 to 20 degrees.
0: Right. So six times steeper.
1: Woof. Yeah. yeah. Woof. Yeah. Are Woof. you kidding? <laughs> and you can't tell how fast it's falling because it comes in at a pretty high angle of attack the nose is up a lot higher it's not pointing in the direction that it's actually going right so it looks like it's oh it's pretty normal it's not that that steep an approach no it's pointed down at the ground way underneath the belly of the uh, airplane of the of the space shuttle so it is coming down like a brick
0: yeah the belly the belly is hurrying towards the ground yeah the the nose looks like it's doing yes. a better job <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's it's way up here. It's 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 more aloof. Yeah, you know, I chased in the T 38s uh, We chased. Thir- I, I chased thirteen shuttle returns.
0: Sort of accompanied them through the final phase of landing. Is that what that means?
1: Absolutely, and uh, we were there basically in case some of the instruments didn't work correctly. There's a thing called the pedostatic system. The space shuttle is like any other airplane. Once it gets into the atmosphere, it sticks out a probe that uh, measures how hard it's going through the air. And so it knows, it can tell its altitude from that. It does math inside the uh, vehicle and it gives you an airspeed and tells you how fast the air is flowing over the wings. So it's super, super important for the uh, approach. But then the uh, we did was in case that probe does not come out correctly or gives faulty information, we had a perfectly good T-38 right next to him that we Mm -hmm. could uh, call out the uh, airspeeds to him and the altitudes in case the uh, radar altimeter, uh, which tells you how high off the ground you are, uh, very high fidelity, was wrong.
0: So back to the 747. You train on how to fly a regular 747. How do you get yourself ready for the 200,000 pounds on your back?
1: Well, the heaviest one I flew was 274,000. And I think that's the heaviest one we flew ever, and that is hard to do. We would train, of course, in the simulator, which is, you know, simulators are good, but they're not great. Uh, They don't really match the fidelity of the actual vehicle, but it's good enough to do procedures and get the procedures right. But we took these uh, pretty good simulators, and then we added uh, some mass models to it that would act like an orbiter sitting on the back of the 747. And it didn't do a great job of changing the dynamics of the, or the handling qualities that we expected, but it did give you a good idea how the accelerations and everything were going to be different. So that was, that was pretty important to do that. And especially uh, what happens if you lose an engine, if you lose an engine in the 747 and you don't have the orbiter on it, it really is a non-event. It's, it's, it's very benign and easy to fly out compared to other airplanes, especially. Uh, with the orbiter, it's a little more exciting. So that training was super, super important. We actually did have a, an issue where we had an orbiter on a 747 and one of our captains lost an engine. Uh, it was fortunately at a thousand feet. It wasn't right off the deck. That'd be more sporty. And they did everything right. They brought the airplane back, saved everything. And it was business as usual, which is what you'd expect.
0: Yeah, yeah. The simulator. I think I understood you to say the simulator. You know, you've got a heavy thing on you, so you're going to accelerate more slowly, and you're going to it's going to take a longer rollout when you land because all that extra mass. But I was curious if if the simulator could help you get a feel for when I need to roll the airplane for a turn. You know, is it going to feel the same with the shuttle on the back? Is it going to feel different with the shuttle on back than the than the naked airplane? Is that what couldn't come through the simulator very well?
1: Well, you know. First off, of course, the, the 747 is a pilot's dream. It is such a benign, absolutely benign, wonderful, lovely puppy dog of an airplane. We call it an old man's airplane because it so takes care of you. Uh, huh. It makes you look good. Huh. Now we put an orbiter on the back. And not so fast. <laughs> the orbiter is is a blibbit. Now the orbiter lifts its own weight in cruise. Uh, which is interesting. If you oh, look, okay. the uh, the nose is pitched up. Yeah, so it's actually lifting. It's not doing anything for the drag. You still got the drag. We we used to kid around. It's it's hard to communicate how much power it takes to move this thing around. And we used to be happy when we'd get the uh, motors back below 10,000 pounds of fuel flow, uh, 10,000 pounds per hour per engine. It, this thing is pouring gas out the back end to keep the whole stack flying. And the issue with that was you have this weight, the weight that I have in an orbiter, I cannot put in as gas. I don't have uh, any fuel, you know, you have a limit and you have a maximum landing weight that you're allowed. So if you land heavier than that, the stresses that on landing could have caused damage to the airplane, you have to inspect the airplane to make sure everything's okay. So on my last flight, I forgot what it was, but it was something ridiculous that the difference between emergency fuel number and our maximum landing weight was like 45 seconds. So I hit my emergency fuel at about, you know, I hit max landing weight and 45 seconds later, I was at emergency fuel.
0: Wow. Which means get on the ground fast. Your engines are going to starve in a moment.
1: Yeah, well, it's, uh, you have 20 minutes of flying uh, okay. is, is emergency fuel. But, uh, you know, we hit the number because we had to, and we hit it dead on. But the handling qualities of it were weird in that uh, the first time I took off with it, of course, the orbiter, adding so much weight, it's all, all that 274,000 pounds on that one, spin up the tires. And when you bring the tires up into the wheel well, which you have to do pretty quickly because you want to get rid of the drag there's a burning rubber smell that goes through the entire airplane. It's like, well, that's new. I don't remember that from before. So the burning rubber smell. And then because the center of gravity is so high, if you bank the airplane more than about 20 degrees, at about 15 degrees, it's about break even. But at about a little bit more than that, like close to 20 degrees of bank, the orbiter starts Making itself known, it tries to steepen up the bank on you. It tries to fall over to the side. Oh. Yeah. So it's like, well, nobody told me about that.
0: Yeah, I didn't want to bank that steeply.
1: Yeah. Whoa, Nellie. You know, so you're, you're wrestling that thing. You don't think about it. The orbiter is blanking the uh, rudder, of mm-hmm. course, which is why they have the horizontals on the stab. The horizontals got the, the vertical pieces on the stab.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's great. It
0: looks, like a, it looks like a tritail. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So you've got the horizontal stab, which you have on most airliners, which is the thing way in the back that's flat with the uh, parallel to the ground. And we put two big slabs of metal on the sides of it vertically to help to keep the nose from drifting right and left when you're flying. A swept wing airplane like the 747, where the main wing is swept back. The nose tends to drift left yeah. and right. So you have something called a yaw damper on the vertical tail. Well, the vertical tail that's got the movable part, the rudder, is not in any kind of air that that is pushing against anything.
0: Because the shuttles, the orbiters, blocking the air that normally would flow. Yeah, it's right.
1: blocking that air. So that rudder is back there kicking. And the way I first noticed this, of course, nobody tells you about this. I'm in the left seat, and you know, oh, I, I hope I get this thing back to the ground. Okay, you know, that that kind of feeling. <laughs> and uh, it's all of a sudden it goes two degrees of the bank left. And we're still flying straight, I'm in an autopilot. And I'm watching this and I feel pulses from the uh, yacht damper okay, it straightens back out then it falls over to the right and two degrees, bonk. And you can feel the pulses of the, you know, it's, there's finally enough side slip that a piece of the rudder is touching the stream and can push it back over again. So when you're flying the uh, orbiter, it's sitting there bonking back and forth between two degrees of bank right and left, all the way across the country, <laughs> just nice and slow. But yeah, it's like, boom, you know, 30 seconds later, the other side, boom, and you get <laughs> used to it. But it's like, well, that's, that's part of it. And, you know, of course, now you're going to feel that when you get on final, it is directionally a lot more sloppy yeah. uh, than a straight 747 because of that. It wallows a little bit. So you have to remember the it wallows, but it's a 747. So it's, about the size of a football field, you're wrangling up there. And so the back end where the main tires are, are way behind you and you have to be cognizant of whether they're left or right of the paved runway. You want them on the hard part. And that is kind of interesting that it'll wallow around, especially in a crosswind, it'll wallow around enough that you really have to pay attention to that. In a steady crosswind, in a 747, you're almost over the edge of the runway in the cockpit while the main tires are on the center line. Very weird uh, situation.
0: You lose point for leaving tire tracks in the grass though.
1: No, you don't. No, that's bad. That's very bad. (laughs) Yeah, don't do that. No green on airplane. No No green on airplane.
0: (laughs) Hey, we're close to the end of our time. And you've had this whole other chapter to your life in recent years that centers on you know music and theater and you know stuff that you didn't encounter much of at the Air Force Academy or at NASA what has that meant to you what what gifts do you look at that chapter of your life and realize you've gotten from it
1: well yeah, that was a uh, a fun thing that took on a life of its own we started a, our own corporation JFA and I started consulting with fortune 100 companies risk and safety and all the things we learned through our growing up at NASA and all the things we learned with uh, Challenger, of course, and Columbia. And all those lessons learned, I said, you can apply those to innovative processes, which opened up a lot of doors. I'm still doing that now, as it turns out, trying to apply the lessons learned to some uh, very innovative companies out there. So they do this uh, without endangering their company along the way. Of course, I wrote a, a a novel, really fun one, by the way. Thank you very much. It's a uh, not as colorful as yours. <laughs> you know, I enjoyed tremendously, and it opened up a, a side of me that was a little more artistic that I wasn't expecting. And then because of that, and uh, also because our middle son, Dak, son 2.0, got into theater. We started getting more into theater ourselves to the point that we started, we became producers and investors uh, in Broadway plays.
0: What's it mean to be a producer, Charlie?
1: A producer is like an investor that produces more money. You raise more money for the uh, play. Most of these are, you, you put in a, a set amount of money, considerable amount of money to help with the investment, to pay the actors, to pay all the people that support the uh, production of this play until it can become something that funds itself through ticket sales. The big thing is investing in the play. You're investing so they can get to uh, solvency themselves. It's like you're starting a motor and you're trying to get it spinning until it can keep itself running. And that's exactly what happens. And of course, you recoup the profits after they're, they're making money themselves, or you don't because they didn't make money. Yeah. That's, that's where it's tricky, but it's fun to go through the process of, are we going to invest in this particular property? And you get down to a uh, line reads, you know, I don't know about this line. What do you guys think?
0: You, do, you would be involved at that kind of level?
1: Yep. Wow. Some of them we are. And uh, we say, well, I don't try to juggle somebody's elbow in that particular case. But uh, if something grabs me and says, this seems wrong, I will say that. I go, what are you guys thinking here? What's, what's going on here? This doesn't seem to flow. Does it belong here? Does it, should it be moved somewhere else? I will will ask that, but I didn't like to get to the point of saying you should rewrite this whole section. Hmm. Some people ask for it. Some people don't. And that's just uh, interesting that it gets down to that point. I was Uh, kind of surprised when somebody wanted to know my opinion on something. It's like, really?
0: Something I found in my life. And I think you just touched on it here. Um, I'm really curious about what your take on how the first phase of your life and career feeds into. You talked about your consulting company as taking risk and safety and operational lessons you learned from cockpits of airplanes and space shuttles and and realizing, gee, those are those are transportable. Those are applicable to lots of places that have lots of endeavors that have nothing to do with. It. Airplanes or space shuttles, and now now you've also been working across another seam, another boundary between the very technical world and the artistic and theatrical world. And I'm wondering if you can extract any sense of what is it that really makes those things what is it makes the elements of the one so transportable into another?
1: Oh, well, the idea there, and this is something we engineers. Uh, have to be careful of is that, you know, it doesn't fall, in, doesn't seem to fall into the box. And what I tell youngsters these days, youngsters in their 20s and 30s, and their teens, of course, is there's no box. There is no box. You define what the boundaries are because there is this transportability, as you said, of certain concepts that don't seem to apply here that maybe you have the vision of saying, wait a minute, you know, I have this vision that it applies in this particular way. And this is how this particular segment can benefit from the knowledge that has been gained over in this other segment. And the trick there is, and you may be wrong, and that's okay. You know, I, I failed a dozen times in my career, trying to do stuff that was wrong, but it made me smarter on what I do next. So that is something that you just do it. And if it looks like you have a vision, follow the vision and, and see where it takes you. And don't be afraid of uh, if people say, oh, you know, you're not you're thinking too far outside the box. Well, remember, there is no box.
0: Hmm. Yeah. The other thought that comes to me, as you say, that is in this very confused and complex world that we're in, it's a comfort to know that whatever path I'm on at the moment, I'm gaining, I'm gaining things. I'm gaining knowledge. I'm gaining some wisdom. You gain your wisdom from your screw-ups. I'm getting insights about the work or about technology or about people or about all of those that can take me to many other places, to very different places. I don't have to worry about getting stuck on a path. You can step onto another path. And and you've got a good toolkit. In your heart and in your head, that will help you on that new path.
1: Well, let me leave you with one thought. Tell me about what you studied in college. Right. I started studying languages. Yeah. How could that possibly apply to space shuttles? Mm -hmm. But it Mm -hmm. does. But it does. You know, the engineering you learned with your graduate studies, how could that possibly apply? Of course, it directly applies because all knowledge is valuable and important. So that's the only thing I can take away from that is of course it applies. As opposed to somebody saying, oh no, there's no way that could possibly, no, it directly applies. And it's probably important that we bring somebody like you in because we don't have that particular tool set in our group. We need to have somebody that thinks like you do because we don't think that way and that's gonna put us into blind alleys that we can't find our way out. So we need somebody like you that said, oh no, that's not really a blind alley. You know, make the left turn. And here you are with this whole new approach to doing something. So absolutely necessary. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So what do you say to parents? Uh, you've probably heard this a thousand times as I have. Oh my God, she's majoring in English or history or are you ever going to get a job with that major? How, do, you know, how does a job lead to a major? What's your rebuttal? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, well, two uh, answers to that. You uh, go into a room, you, know, you and I give talks around the country, around the world, and uh, you know, ask the group there, who's probably in their 30s or 40s, let's say, just for grins, uh, everybody here that is still working in your college major, raise your hand. <laughs> and if more than a third of the people raise their hand, I'd be surprised. It's usually more like a quarter of them will raise their hand that are still working in that at most. So I don't worry about it. All this knowledge is important. You have to learn. And that's, that's probably one of the toughest things to convince a parent, of course, is that all of this knowledge is important.
0: Yeah. And it will get your child off the payroll. It's going to be okay.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I've got three boys. None of them are pilots. I offered to give them pilot training. None of them are pilots. Only one of them is an engineer and not really using his engineering work What's he uh, doing? anymore. What's the engineer doing? The engineer uh, is doing land management now, petroleum. He's a petroleum guy. Oh. And he is uh, now a manager, which he hates. And I said, told you. <laughs> it's it's one of those things that it's outside of, of your comfort zone. It's a completely different skill set nobody trains you for. Yeah. And uh, he found himself there. So fortunately, he goes, well, all that stuff you told me back when I was a kid now makes sense. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> no, the good news is he remembered some of it.
1: <laughs> yeah, thank goodness. You know, it's, it's the old story. You know, when they turn into their late teens, especially guys, the dad and mom get stupider and stupider. And all of a sudden, they're mid-20s. We get smarter and smarter again. How about that?
0: It's a miracle. And so DAC, DAC number two is in theater and Sun 3.0 is doing what?
1: Actually, he's uh, on sabbatical from college. I think we pushed him a little hard. Uh, he went to, got his uh, high school and uh, associate's degree, the college diploma at the same time. So he went to uh, early college high school. Yeah. He he went on to finish off his degree and it absolutely, he was burnt out. I said, take some time off. Yeah. Yeah, we're not going to send you to college jail. Do something that, that makes you happy. So he's in the middle right now trying to figure out what he wants to do.
0: Good for him. Good for you for supporting yeah. him in that.
1: Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not supporting him because he's working and he's making money. So it's like, okay, you know, it's, I'm cheating. I'm teaching him because he's in the real world now. And he's learning. This is perfect. Yeah. He goes, well, I didn't want to go and learn anymore college. Well, you're learning in real life, buddy.
0: OJT, on the job training.
1: It is. And it's perfect. And it's exactly what you needed at that point. One more lecture on management and budget, you know, know, apparently, you know, it was burning you out. Okay. Go to the real world. Let's see what's going on, how they do it. Very cool. Well,
0: what's your next adventure, Charlie Justice?
1: That's a fair question. And one that in recent weeks has been much on my mind. I really enjoy uh, working with innovation companies. I've got you know autonomous vehicle companies. I've got autonomous flight vehicles working with the ones that carry people. Hmm. This is really interesting, really a, a fun time to be alive and exercising some of the, the stuff that we've learned at NASA by, you know by screwing stuff up, by getting it wrong. <laughs> You know, and, and I'm sorry, it's, it's an ill wind that blows no good. But the bottom line is, we had to learn necessarily that we were doing stuff wrong. We didn't know we were doing it wrong, but we learned. Well, let's you know apply some of these nuggets to these other guys so they don't have to crash vehicles and hurt people. Let's apply some of these uh, high reliability organization concepts to these innovation processes. How about some resilience engineering? That we've learned so much about because NASA had to learn it quickly and hard yeah so that is something that's good to apply I'd, I'd like to see all of these companies I'm working with get through without a single accident that hurts somebody without bending any metal. I know that's probably not going to happen but you know we can work as hard as we can towards that goal and we're smart enough that we should be able to do it and get really at least very close to that goal great fun. It is. I'm looking forward to our
0: January adventure when I get to visit you and your bride out in California and catch up in person. But thank you so much for sharing some of the more fun parts of your life and your pathway uh, with me and with the folks that listen to this podcast doing that today. It's
1: been a great discussion. Thank you so much for having me. You know, of course, you know, I love sharing it with you because I know what your background is and Every so often, I I keep saying, well, wait a minute. Don't ask me that question. You've got this in your background. (laughs) So that's probably a whole nother podcast. I get to interview you. Oh, that's a deal. Sign me up. That'd be fun. Yeah. I'll make it tough on you. I'll I'll get my wife on here because she is so good at interviewing people. You know, she pulls everything out.
0: (laughs) That would be fun. A tag team interview. Let's do that.
1: That would be. You tell me when.
0: All right. We'll set that up. Thank you again,
1: Charlie. All right, Kathy. Cheers. Thank you so much for having me.
0: My pleasure. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplorers.com.